Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn a lot more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be physician assistant Jonathan Clemens, who works in a multidisciplinary eating disorder clinic. He's going to help us understand a topic we've never covered before, eating disorders. And this is an exciting milestone for Dr. Doctor. This is episode number 300 that we are recording tonight. So, Chris, what reflections do you have that you'd like to share on reaching that milestone? Uh, let me think. Uh, wow. <laughs> you know, we jokingly say, um, the three co-hosts, that you know we've achieved something with this podcast that we never actually planned for, and that is some modicum of success. Uh, what started off as kind of just a fun idea to fill some airtime on our local Catholic radio station has turned into uh, a national a national broadcast with thousands of listeners, and it's really been an honor to sort of come into people's lives, if you will, uh, weekly and and share our guests and share our ideas. I just don't think we ever thought we would be recording episode number 300. So thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, thank you for supporting our supporters like uh, our friends at CMF Curo. And we'll do our best to keep going and keep bringing you good content. Amen to that, Chris. And so Besides the fact that we haven't covered eating disorders before, which is an oversight or a difficulty finding a, a guest that we knew. But anyway, we've got that now. Why is this episode topic important for our listeners? You know, I think I think this is an interesting one. And at first glance, you could think it's just another another topic. But I think there's really a lot more to it. Um, and that's because and I think we'll learn a lot more from our, our guests on this. But Eating disorders, uh, they're, they're sneaky, um, and they sneak into families, and there is most certainly a stigma associated with them, even more so than, I think, so-called average mental, mental illness. Um, <laughs> nobody likes to talk about this. It, it isn't talked about in many families where somebody is suffering from an eating disorder. It's almost, you could think of it as a kind of a great conspiracy of silence, um, and I would go so far to say, in my experience, that an individual doesn't have an eating disorder. More appropriately, a family has an eating disorder um, because there is, there's, it affects everyone in the family, uh, and it affects the friends of the person with the disorder. It, it's so widespread. So I think we could be so bold as to say, you know, you, you know someone who has an eating disorder or a child maybe with an eating disorder, even if you don't know you do. Yeah, in prepping for this episode, I didn't realize, um, you know, it's not just anorexia and bulimia. There are a lot of other things that are actually being labeled now that, you know, even 10 years ago, we might not have, have labeled. And so uh, I think tonight with Jonathan, we're going to help to overcome some of that ignorance, and which was great with me until I started prepping for this episode. Right. You know, uh, I'm an OBGYN, so I see, for the most part, all women, and I see a disproportionate number of young women. Um, and many of those women are struggling with fertility. Well, that comes with a lot of anxiety, a lot of strife, relationship problems. It is not at all uncommon as we're sort of working through their history to find out there's been an eating disorder issue. And maybe the struggle of, of infertility has now brought something forward that they thought was really gone, maybe from their teenage years. But I think it's just an example of how prevalent this is, um, and how easy it is to hide it, uh, and how comfortable we are at just letting it go. So I, I hope he has some great tips for us as, as parents, as spouses, as friends, on how do we reach out to people that we think may be having a problem and offering them uh, some help, because it is just so prevalent. And I think often, like you said, it's, it's a disorder that affects families. And I wonder how often it affects more the family members than the person themselves who, who thinks that things are normal for them. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, we're a, we're a culture 
uh, not just in the U.S., but especially in the U.S., that's really obsessed with appearance, more specifically with body image. Um, and can you think of a more awkward individual than a teenage girl who is trying to understand herself and her body and where she fits into the world and then being bombarded with all kinds of imagery from TikTok and the like uh, about what the perfect body is. She doesn't see that when she looks in the mirror. Um, and that would seem to me is just ground that's ripe for a, a body image disorder and an eating disorder. And uh, I've been amazed to learn more about some of the um, physiological effects. Like if you're not getting enough calories in, your brain will not develop. And if you don't do it by the time the brain's fully developed, there's some some damage you can't undo. The same thing with bones. We, we only build bones structure and mass up until about the same age, mid-20s, as our brains develop. So if we don't get enough calcium, our bones will never get as strong as they could have gotten. Yeah. I mean, again, sort of selfishly focused on my area of infertility. Um, it's not at all uncommon for a woman who has an ovulation problem. She's not ovulating. When we, when we start looking, we find that she, she has an eating disorder and she's not eating. Her body fat percentage is getting really, really low and her ovaries turn off, which is not good if, if you want to be pregnant. Right. Well, with that, let's go to our patented medical trivia question of the day. And the category is hunger. Yes. What else? <laughs> Why not? Okay. So uh, as a prelude, our bodies produce chemicals that can make us feel uh, hunger and well, or hungry or well-fed. One of those chemicals is called leptin. Uh, it's produced by fat cells and it regulates our hunger over the long term and tells us we are not particularly hungry. But the more fat cells we develop up to a point, the more our appetite is suppressed. But when we get so many of them, our fat cells become resistant to leptin and we don't get that signal. Now in the short term, there's another chemical called CCK, which is released when we eat to cause us to feel full over a period of hours instead of days or weeks. So with that background, I have a three, a simple question, one word answer. Of the three macronutrients, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, which one has the greatest effect on helping us feel full and which has the least effect? We'll give you the answer toward the end of the show, but now we'll have a short break and then we'll come back with Jonathan Clemens and eating disorders here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to this episode of Dr. Doctor and we have with us physician assistant Jonathan Clemens who's going to talk to us about eating disorders. Jonathan is owner and a clinician for Ergo Claire Clinic Ergo Claire Clinic, easy for someone else to say, occupational family medicine in Olympia, Washington. He also works at the EMILY program, which is an eating disorder clinic in Lacey, uh, Washington, where he's been for three years. He actually graduated from a Protestant seminary, and he's a trained fire and EMS chaplain. He is now uh, getting a doctoral degree, a DMSC, which is the advanced degree for physician assistants who want to work more in uh, research and deepen their knowledge. So, John, Jonathan, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much for having me. So, Jonathan, uh, your name came up because you spoke in Denver at the Catholic Medical Association meeting, and it was a wonderful presentation, which I have watched. Uh, but really, how does one get interested in this, specifically you? <laughs> Uh, well, eating disorders is a fairly niche field. There's not a whole lot of uh, folks working in it um, in terms of uh, physicians and other medical practitioners. Uh, pediatricians get some in introduction into it, it typically in residencies. Uh, other, otherwise, it's kind of a, a very, you have to know somebody who enlists you into it. And that was one of my uh, prior supervising doctors who, uh, who enlisted me and then retired and kind of left me doing his job. After <laughs> <laughs> well, Jonathan, we should probably start, as we often do, with sort of some vocabulary or, or definitions, because you know, listeners, stay tuned. When we say eating disorders, we don't mean you have trouble, you know, not spilling food on your shirt. Um, <laughs> so when we say eating disorders, you know, what are we really talking about? So eating disorders as a group are mental illnesses. They mm -hmm. are just like depression, anxiety. They are cataloged and described in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM-5, 
Um, there was uh, a number of changes in the DSM-5 published in 2013, and those list disorders of eating that um, have serious uh, lifestyle and physical impacts on the people who have them. You know, there's like a lot of other things, there's a spectrum between normal eating and then disordered eating. And then you have eating disorders, kind of like you might be a little bit depressed, but not have a depression. Hmm. So there's three really bad type of or harmful behaviors that can be associated with eating disorders. Would you spell those out? Because I think most of us have heard the terms. Sure. So the, the three kind of cardinal aspects of eating disorders are going to be uh, binging. That's eating way too much. It's not simply, you know, going for more pizza when you're in co competition with your roommates to see who can get the most. Um, but a, um, a really out of control eating episode. Uh, there's restriction. Uh, you'd think that would be the opposite of binging, but actually some people can restrict and restrict and restrict and then have a willpower, whatever challenge, and then turn out and, and eat and eat and eat. The third type is, would be um, purging. Purging is typically, we think of it in bulimia through induced vomiting, but there are other types of purging, laxatives, uh, diet pills, diuretics, and exercise itself can be an effort to purge. So what's the difference between binging? Well, what does a binge episode look like, Jonathan? Well, uh, again, as talking to my patients, it's, it's really about um, dealing with stress or uh, something something's not going well. And so to try and compensate for that issue, uh, the patient will typically eat far more than an average person would in a very short period of time without typically without stopping to taste or enjoy or anything. And, um, that's, um, often associated with, with shame, feeling out of control and, it's, it's just a, a very a very negative experience, but it's one that's become habit for people with uh, binging-based eating disorders. Now, I mean, that's an interesting point. You talked about the shame aspect. You know, if someone were going to drink too much alcohol, they would say in the midst of drinking that it tastes good and they enjoyed it. Does, does the person with an eating disorder who's binging, is it pleasurable in the moment of the binge or – is, is it not? Is it more? You know, that's that's going to depend on on how the individual reacts, but typically not. Uh, you know, there. Wow. What what characterizes? You know, so I, I read Aquinas on gluttony, and Ooh, very good. <laughs> I, I, I I resemble gluttony uh, in terms of of just uh, overdoing it and and loving it. Uh, way more than the people I see with with binge eating disorder. It's not. Um, it's not comfortable. It's not pleasant. Mm. It's it's very much self harm. Oh, so they they think they're harming themselves in the moment. I don't know that they would say that, but if you you talk to talk to people who are in recovery, I think you'll find that that's a very okay. a, a very common reflection on what was going on. So that paints a pretty clear picture on on what a binge looks like. Um, help listeners understand kind of the opposite, as you pointed out earlier, a purge. What is that? that that's an effort to fundamentally um, either resolve feelings of discomfort or um, counteract the calories consumed. Oh. So ag again, induced vomiting is, is by far the most common, but laxative abuse, um, mm. exercise are probably the next two most common. And you can get into some rather esoteric ones. Stimulant abuse is not uncommon, but, you know, thyroid medicine abuse. There's there's different sorts of things. Yeah, that one's, that one's kind of an oddball one. But, um, you know, trying to um, increase metabolism so that everything burns off is a, it's a terribly risky thing to do for your heart. Got um, it. And then, of course, restriction is just not eating or not eating very much. Well, so there's there's a couple different there, there's restricting what you're eating, 
Um, and then there's restricting the total volume of what's what's going on. So there's the, the okay. two main restrictive diagnoses are going to be anorexia nervosa, which is the most commonly, well, most well-known and sometimes the most visually obvious at its late stages, where, where people simply don't look like they've got enough muscle on them. They're, they're, you can actually see, you know, we, we start to see people as looking looking unhealthy when the um, the, the paraorbital fat pads, um, you end up kind of a, a, a skeletal appearance in the face when those, those have been, you know, uh, consumed by the body. So um, you've got restriction to restrict because of a desire to look thin, uh, mm. to be thinner, um, a, a poor perception of what one's um, body looks like. Um, that's a key hallmark of anorexia nervosa. The, the other uh, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, um, you can have people who are not wanting to eat because they don't like the texture of food. That's mm -hmm. often associated with sensory processing, sometimes with autism spectrum disorders. You've got um, folks who are afraid something bad's going to happen. Somebody ha who has a fear of vomiting. And they never want to be full, afraid that that will, will prompt uh, further vomiting if they've had a bad experience in the past. And some people have no appetite for um, really no discernible reason. And they just restrict even without a desire to make themselves thinner. So, yeah, that whole diagnosis of ARFID, the Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, was something I hadn't heard of until a few months ago. So I think we'll get a little more into that. But before we do, what are some of the medical problems that happen in, in your patients' bodies if they're binging, purging, and or restricting? So um, binging is, is not good, but it's uh, the least directly harmful. Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, caloric intake will... Um, increase weight. And the as the BMI climbs, there are uh, uh, issues associated with that. Uh, I think we'll probably get into that a little bit later when we talk about weight loss. Sure. Um, but um, the electrolytes can can imbalance um, seriously through purging. And that that's um, as you as as a patient would use uh, diuretics, um, well, more, more specifically laxatives, or induce vomiting, that's going to um, going to cause imbalances, typically of things like you know, potassium. You know, not that uh, for 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 our listeners, potassium is a pretty important electrolyte. If that's goofy, um, you can get muscle aches first, and then you start having heart problems, which can be fatal. And then, if we move on to um, you know the GI system, what happens there if you're not getting enough calories? or if you're using laxatives? Oh, well, so uh, abuse of stimulant laxatives can lead to uh, colon problems in the long term. Uh, it's it's uh, really unfortunate. Um, and that can cause lifetime problems with, with throughput. Um, uh, for, with restriction, one of the things you get is delayed transit time. So um, from, from plate to toilet, your, um, your food is going to you're, you're as as you restrict your body will slow down and try and get every single calorie out of every bite you eat and so the body increases its efficiency but one of the challenges is and one of the things we deal with all the time in uh, in refeeding people is it takes a while so the stomach has delayed gastric emptying okay um, and so and when we try and feed people a normal amount of food that just seems like an incredible amount not just not just sort of mentally, but physically as well, because right. the stomach is not used to emptying on a schedule that you or I would have. So these don't occur in isolation. There's usually some hangers on with each of these diagnoses, aren't there? So the diagnoses, like everything else in the DSM-5, it's descriptive. And um, there is definitely overlap between them. So one of the things we see is um, that putting people with different diagnoses together in one treatment group will often uh, folks will give each other insights. And you'd think, well, somebody who has a binge eating disorder has nothing in common with somebody who has a profound anorexia, anorexia nervosa, sorry, I should be specific. But in fact, they all 
share a common poor emotional relationship with food. So, and what about other mental health disorders? How common are those oh, with these? Yeah, I, I would say less than less than ten percent. Probably about five percent of of patients arrive with just an eating disorder. Uh, they, they've usually mm -hmm. been diagnosed with uh, anxiety, depression, OCD. Not all not all of them all at the same time, but um, it, it's fairly common for um, these patients to have PTSD. Uh, they're often um, trauma or abuse survivors. And there's um, a relationship of some kind with uh, autism spectrum, isn't there? Uh, yes. It, again, um, autism spectrum, um, you, you, you do tend to see that. And you see, there. I think we still need more research on it. You see, you see quite a bit of gender dysphoria in eating disorders. And gender dysphoria, mm -hmm. eating disorders, and... Um, in autism spectrum uh, disorders, all seem to co-occur. It's yeah. it's not real clear which is the which is the primary, or if they're just kind of all interdependent on each other. Now, Jonathan, I think it's probably fair to say that um, there's some key things that professionals like you that deal with eating disorders would like us to know, and one of them has to do with sort of this false sense of uh, looking looking well. Talk to us some about that. Um, well, so first, first of all, most patients with eating disorders look normal. Mm. You can't tell by looking at somebody that they do or do not have an eating disorder. There are some people with really uh, late stage anorexia or late stage binge eating disorder whose BMI are, are going to be well outside the norm. Mm. So you can see them and you say, I bet that person has an eating disorder. But with the prevalence up to up to as, as high as 9%, depending on who you ask, certainly at least 5%, you, you look out, you, you see people walking down the street. It's like, well, do, do one in 20 of these people have an eating disorder? And I can't tell. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, because it's a fairly hidden, um, it's hidden not only because uh, many times it doesn't show outward uh, signs, but also because it's really shameful. And while eating disorders, um, eating disorders exist across cultures, it's uh, pretty much shameful in all of them, less so among white Americans and Westerners than most. Eating disorders in um, other cultures, Asian cultures, um, and the African American community um, tend to not get as much uh, attention. It's believed to be a disease of primarily young white women. Uh, specifically anorexia and bulimia. But in fact, the uh, the surveys show that it, it crosses cultures and age and socioeconomic uh, spectrum. I think the oldest person I've helped treat for the, with an eating disorder is 70. Oh, my. <laughs> so, Jonathan, if we can't tell by looking at somebody, what's... Uh, perhaps an easy screening question or questions we can ask somebody that will catch them off guard and maybe help, you know, alert us. Well, so if, if you're a, um, if you're in a, in a physician role, yes. um, I would say just screen everybody with a, with there, are, there are a couple more complicated tools, but I like the simple one question. How's your relationship with food? <laughs> and if somebody says, eh, or, uh, fine why um <laughs> that's probably a normal response but if somebody begins to regale you with about their yo-yo dieting or um or just wants to change the sub that you you need to be sensitive when you're asking these these sorts of questions but uh that might call for a more a more thorough eating disorder questionnaire there are a number of different tools um i think i've seen more than a dozen different ones but basically, the first thing you have to do is ask the question of your patients, really from a, a place of concern. Great point. So, Jonathan, we've mentioned, you've mentioned a number of different eating disorders. Which one is the most common? So, binge eating disorder is actually the most common, but it was not actually characterized as an eating disorder until the 2013 DSM-5 revision. So we have this, this very common thing with not a whole lot of research on it, because if there's not a category for it, you can't get funded for it. And so you can't <laughs> research it. Uh, 
So was it thought to be part of bulimia before? Because so, it's been around. Well, I think there was, again, I was not involved in creating the DSM-5 or in the politics Rampant. ahead of it. <laughs> but I would say that there is a lot of, of uh, anti-weight bias, that the belief among uh, medical professionals, this has been documented, by the way, this is not just me, that um, a belief that people who have difficulty cr- controlling their weight just have a willpower problem, rather mm-hmm. than that they have an actual disorder. Mm-hmm. We, we've, we've rushed to make obesity a medical diagnosis, but hesitated to make binge eating disorder a mental health diagnosis. Interesting. Yeah. So... I guess I can't, I'm not thinking now, what makes the diagnosis of bulimia so I can differentiate it from so, binge eating so bulimia, disorder? Bulimia is binging and purging. Uh, so binge eating disorder is binging without any purging. So oh. um, you can have bulimia without ever inducing vomiting or laxatives or anything. If you've got a Fitbit and a treadmill got and it. you're um, obsessively trying to run off all the calories you eat, that meets the definition of bulimia. Mm. Okay. Right. Moving on to anorexia, because listeners know that term, because mm-hmm. it's certainly talked about, I think, in, in the popular culture more often. What is anorexia and what, what makes it you know, such a crisis in healthcare? So um, there's two types of anorexia. Actually, there's really one with two different names. Anorexia nervosa is a weight or image focused attempt to lose weight, right? What, what has been characterized recently, as, it, it actually falls on the head, under the header of other specified feeding or eating disorders, uh, is called atypical anorexia nervosa. Hmm. So up until um, the DSM-5, it was published in 2013. A female with anorexia could not be diag- or female could not be diagnosed with anorexia if she was having periods normally or any periods at all, really. Huh. Um, it, it, the absence or, or or severe restriction in menses was considered part of anorexia. But really, if you have a uh, five foot five woman. Um, and one loses weight from, you know, 150 to 110 pounds, that's a pretty serious weight drop. And family and friends would probably notice that and say, great, but now take the, take a woman of the same size, same age and whatnot. And instead she loses from 240 to 200 pounds. So the same weight loss, the same height is considered, oh, you're doing well on your diet. Well, in fact, the underlying physical consequences of restricting are going to be very similar between those, those two women. So this is, this is a, a kind of a culture problem, right? We, we value restricting by those with higher BMIs, ones who we might consider having an obesity diagnosis but express concern when it's normal weighted uh, patients going to become underweighted. So um, atypical anorexia nervosa is, uh, is, is probably the most insidious and invisible of the eating disorders. Um, the, the patients who experience that are often affirmed by their medical community who doesn't see this as a necessary, necessarily a problem, even though, You've, you've got malnutrition going on there. Even though they're significantly overweight. Mm-hmm. It's just where they, they started from. So how can these, how can somebody recognize that this is going on? Um, so if you see this in friends or family, I, I think that one question, screening uh, question is a ah. great one. Um, <laughs> but if you're, if you're looking at it as a medical practitioner, uh, when you start getting, start seeing things like this, I strongly recommend just pulling out. There are a number of different, um, you know, multi-question one sheet um, uh, screening tools that will um, give you, uh, if your if your patient's honest with you, give you a a fair assessment if there's something going on. If if uh, a primary care cl- clinician sees something like that, I think the best thing to do is refer to a comprehensive eating disorder clinic um, where you. Have- multi-specialist. The first thing they're going to do when with a referral is really get the get the patient on the phone 
and go through an even more detailed right. analysis of what's going on. What have you eaten in the last 24 hours? What are your weight trends? What did you, what was your highest weight, lowest weight? Uh, and for and for children, for for um, for kids, we definitely want to see uh, pediatric growth curves. Yeah. So uh, for those not familiar with them, that's where they plot your your kids' weight by age, and then you'll tend to see that that most normal kids will track along the the anticipated growth curve. But if something changes and there's a definite a deviation at some point, that's a real. Um, a real trigger, especially I think uh, you'd have to look at which um, which curves. But it's like if you cross a couple of different lines, uh, then that's a that's definitely a, a hallmark that your uh, your pediatric patient has a uh, has a problem or has has something going on that needs more evaluation. And this so is Jonathan, a good point to take a break uh, before we head into the second half of the interview here on Doctor Doctor. We'll be back with more on eating disorders. Go. And welcome back to Dr. Dr. Jonathan. We're so happy to have you with us talking about this serious problem. You know, I'll bet most listeners would say, yes, anorexia nervosa can be fatal. They've heard of movie stars and other prominent figures that have, that have died. Um, how does one die with this? I mean, is it, a, is it a death by starvation? Is it more complicated than that? And is it the most likely one to, to cause death? So of all of the mental health disorders, anorexia nervosa, binge purge subtype, that's where you have characteristics where it's primarily restricting and underweight, but also binging and purging are associated with that as well. Mm -hmm. That is the second most fatal uh, mental health disorder. It was apparently number one until opioid use disorder passed it. And wow. as you know, we all know how that kills people. Yes. Um, with with um, with anorexia nervosa, you've got um, starvation, absolutely, um, and that is really a nutrition induced cardiac arrest. Wow! Where, wow. where you you simply do not have the energy for to keep the heart beating. Uh, wow. It's one of the one of the things we we can see in um, in really advanced cases is that people's heart will will beat very very slowly mm. and here's here's a tidbit if you if you have a, a a teen patient who says i'm i'm an athlete like great you've got a nice low heart rate get up run to the end of the hallway and back and let me <laughs> check your check your heart rate now because <laughs> a starved heart will um will um jump up in heart rate where an athletic heart wouldn't uh, right so that's a, just a quick tip there. Yes. So um, that's that's starvation. Really, um, the body runs out of energy to, to live, to do the, the things it needs to do to keep the body alive. And there's way, way more that happens before then. Now, such um, a serious disorder that's potentially fatal, like anorexia in this case, you know, I think it begs the question, how do you treat it? And how likely are you to be successful in treating something that could be so serious? Well, let me let me finish off a couple other things first, and I'll address that question. So the yeah. other thing you can that you can you can die from would be um, an arrhythmia based on electrolyte disturbances. Oh, sure, right. So that again, that has to do with um, purging and electrolyte disturbances. And the third thing is um, suicide. Oh, suicide sure. of people with, and again, typically with other. Um, other comorbid um, mental health conditions as well. Suicide is um, tragic no matter what surrounds it, but um, is is relatively um, common in advanced eating disorders. Now, mm. about treating eating disorders, um, I think I, I think this is a good segue because you you really need to take eating disorders seriously. It is mm -hmm. not typically a phase. Uh, by the time somebody notices it in a teen or a young adult it will often be fairly ensconced in their life. This is not something that you're going to give them a pep talk to say, you need to eat more. What can we get for you that you like and expect it to get better? You really so, want to hang out. So Jonathan, before you get into details, what do parents miss as early signs that we don't want them to miss as early signs of an eating disorder in one of their kids? 
So it really depends on the eating disorder, but I would say, let me, let me answer that a little bit, a bit different. I think probably the best protective factor is going to be family meals. Mm. So if you can get your kid and you can make yourself sit down and have family dinner multiple times a week, there's actually a lot of, um, socialization and mental health benefits to that besides just the eating disorder spectrum. So, um, if you're, if, if you're having your, if, if as an, as a parent, you don't see your kid eating, you're going to miss whether they're eating too much, too mm-hmm. little, eating the same thing every time. Now for some, <laughs> for some younger kids, uh, they have a, a, a very, um, regimented what they like to eat. And that's usually okay, but when in doubt, talk it over with your pediatrician. You know what that reminds me of is when we took the kids to restaurants when they were little, they wanted to go to all these different restaurants so that they could order chicken fingers and fries at every restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) That's not an eating disorder. That's just being four. (laughs) Exactly. You know, and that's... there's appropriate levels of concern, but um, you should also be able to reassure yourselves. Uh, again, talking with your your pediatrician or other, um, you know, medical professional that your kids are actually doing about okay. Um, and, and again, they may say it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. No mom or dad, and then actually open up to somebody else about what's really going on. Sure. Um, we have, you know, that's not unique to eating disorders. Kids. Uh, <laughs> oftentimes seem to want to go to somebody else with problems that really parents should be the first ones addressing. But we've done, I think we've done a pretty good job of convincing listeners that this is serious. It needs to be taken seriously and a little bit on prevention there, but go back to your, your earlier comments or where you started to talk about, about treatment. So hopefully you've got some good news for listeners uh, about treatment successes. Well, um, you know, one of the interesting things is, er, uh, so the, the, the best thing to do is early identification and early intervention. Sure. Um, rather than kind of escalating treatments, we, we would typically recommend people get to the highest level of care that's appropriate and work their way back down. There are multiple levels from hospitalization um, through programs that are every you know weekday um, for multiple hours all the way on through outpatient. So um, typically get into a comprehensive eating disorders care center. Um, oftentimes folks in, in rural areas are not going to have as much access to those. Um, unfortunate, unfortunately, we've seen uh, over a doubling in the demand for eating disorders use or eating disorders treatment uh, since the pandemic. Oh my! Basically, it 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 upset everybody's apple cart for the people who were compensating, um, you know, by going to the gym. That was their that was their thing. Then all of a sudden, they couldn't do that, and then oh. things have gotten gotten out of hand. Um, what they used to do didn't work anymore. So, Jonathan, how do you find a trustworthy place? Because you know, some experience that I've had in looking at places, it's hard to find places that are not going to have a very different agenda on how they see the human person than the way we might see the human person. I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, I, I think um, one of the things you see very commonly eating disorders treatment is um, uh, is uh, Cartesian dualism. That is, you know, I have, I have, I have me, and then there's my body, which is something that's separate from myself. So it, it really is in classical Christian worldview Gnosticism, where mm-hmm. you know the flesh yeah. and the soul are considered different, and really a, a Christian worldview holds that you know we are people made in the image of God. So again. I don't know that that clergy necessarily have a really good handle on appropriate counseling for eating disorders, um, nor do most eating disorders facilities have a really good uh, spiritual aspect to their care. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that's a, that's a real problem. That's something that I don't know that somebody who's looking for um, – care focused on uh, on somebody from from a uh, a classically classically christian perspective is necessarily going to find at the same time 
And it's not necessarily that they need to be talking about God regularly in their treatment, but it's the, the things that um, are getting in the way that, you know, are encouraging you to be something that is inconsistent with the Christian worldview. Because I think you had mentioned to me offline that sometimes it was either you or someone else was telling you that too much talk about God during the treatment can actually sometimes be harmful. Sure. Um, you, what you're going to, what you're going to have is a lot of folks have, um, uh, feel unworthy and feel like, you know, they're alienated from God. God can't forgive them for something that's happened to them. There's a lot of trauma and, um, it, I, I, there's room for more research on, on what level of, of spiritual care works best. I don't think there's been nearly enough of it that I've seen yet. So if there's a listener out there, a parent, and they have a child that they're concerned about, where do you recommend they start seeking help? So there are probably half a dozen major multi-state organizations that specialize in eating disorders. Um, They're going to be your best go-to if, well, all right, the other other go-to would be a, a pediatrician. Uh, start. I would say start with them. If they say they're not really well trained in it, then I would go ahead and seek counsel from one of the major organizations. And you can just look up eating disorders in your local area. There's going to probably be something out of a major metro area in your state, um, quite possibly nothing in a mid-sized town or smaller. Um, and... If you need help, then those are the people who are going to probably be best suited and situated to help. And it's usually a long road, isn't it, Jonathan? Um, yes. Um, one of the interesting uh, things is the research studies have been done for a long-term uh, remission from anorexia. Um, when you're when you're looking at patients who've had this well, not, maybe not well developed, but but have been suffering with it for a long time. Uh, there, there can be a tendency to want to give up on people. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, um, there are significant numbers of people who continue um, to actually reach recovery after a decade or more of therapy. Wow. So this is, this is uh, once established, um, very, very tough. One of the one of the things about um, about eating disorders we see, especially in in uh, young adults, is those who aren't getting nutrition. Um, your, your brain is not an on or off thing. Um, <laughs> as, as near as you can figure, um, with poor nutritional states, important things like the prefrontal cortex, you know, that's personality and development and and um, and um, rational thought and consequences and whatnot. All that seems to get kind of browned out by <laughs> a uh, by a lack of nutrition, and so you end up with people functioning really very much from uh, the 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 more fight or flight uh, parts of the brain um, that are um, very black and white thinking, uh, and it, it can be very challenging. Uh, in fact, most of the counseling doesn't actually happen in the uh, inpatient or, or residential care. They, they're just focused on getting, getting food back into the folks. And then uh-huh. they work on the, on the mental illness part of it. Once the physicality, once electrolytes and nutrients have been stabilized and patients are actually able to, um, to absorb uh, things like how to handle distress without purging. Right. Well, you know, listening to you, I'm reminded in, through my career, I've seen a handful of pregnant patients who are in recovery, so to speak, from anorexia. And, and pregnancy poses a huge challenge for them because uh, the body changes and it changes so much. Um, and weight goes up and it, it really has to go up. And it, it occurs to me as I think about it, in every one of those cases, we knew something was up because the patient refused to be weighed at prenatal visits. Oh. Or, or they said, weigh me, but don't tell me the number. I don't want to know, and, and don't talk to me about it. So they're, they're- blind weights can be, uh, can be a very helpful thing um, in terms of letting the, letting the medical professional know what's going on without sure. subjecting the patient to that. Now, a number is a number, right? Yeah. Um, 
it shouldn't hurt. But for people who've had so much of their worth and value attached to a lower weight, it can be very traumatizing to hear that they're in a higher weight, uh, even for a really good reason like new life growing, right? Mm. That's the best reason to gain weight around. Um, <laughs> Uh, on the other hand, um, I've, I've seen uh, some pregnant patients just uh, get it, that mm. the, the act of eating for two um, and, and really nourishing themselves through pregnancy and lactation um, really provides um, insight to them, and it just kind of breaks the stranglehold the eating disorders had on them. I wouldn't say that's a universal experience um, sure. because anorexia nervosa especially is uh, a known risk factor for very low birth weight infants. Right. So interuterine growth restriction, all the other things that are that are horrible um, with, say, a starved mama. So, well, John, no, go ahead, Tom. No, it's going to change. We've got two minutes left. So where do you want to go, Chris? No, I was just going to say, I mean, pregnancy in general poses so many problems for the non-eating disorder uh, person with body image changes. And then our cultural, you know, eat all you like, you're pregnant and a, a fat pregnant woman is a healthy pregnant woman and a fat <laughs> baby is a healthy baby. You know, the sort of the Gerber baby phenomenon, you know, listening to ourselves talk about this, it just reminds me that we're just a mess, you know, <laughs> when it comes to food and, and body. Well, if I if we can leave leave with one thing, I'd like to remind people that humans come in different heights, uh, different colors, you know, different features, and among those features we differ in is our own weight. Right? Uh, we we are not cookie cutters who should all be a particular BMI or mm. wear a size two dress or whatever that, that, uh, God made us differently. And, um, our, our problems stem for when our culture tries to, to cram us all into identical boxes. And uh, well we go said. Along with it. so there's plenty more that we can cover in this area, perhaps in future episodes, but th uh, thanks for giving us this because it's an area that so many don't know about. So if you had, uh, one piece of advice, for parents who suspect their children might have something going on, what would it be, Jonathan? I would say ask and then follow up with your whoever your uh, child's uh, medical care professional is, their pediatrician, pediatric PA or NP, whoever you've got. And um, if they can't give you a good answer or if they're worried about it, uh, go, go, go seek further professional help. Well. John? Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us today. We hope to talk to you soon. God bless you. Thank you very much. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor and welcome to the answer to this episode's medical trivia question. Tom, I'm just hungry to know the answer to this trivia question. You would be. So the three macronutrients, proteins, fats, carbohydrates, which one helps us feel the most full? And... If you remember back to our um, our guest from Wisconsin, yes. uh, Dr. Dave, um, he said to eat what first on your plate because it fills you the most? <laughs> eat the meat first. Eat the protein first because protein right. makes us feel full faster than anything else. As mm. he said, nobody binge eats just steak and steak. You eventually become full and you just stop. <laughs> um, and then so, what makes you, what's the, what's the opposite of that one, right? Well, one this, this is hard because the reference I have, uh, the article actually said fat would be the least. Mm. That's hard. That's hard to imagine. I would have guessed the carbohydrates. I would have guessed the carbs too. Yeah. So I'll have to do some deeper research, but of this review article, uh, they said definitely protein is the one that makes you feel full the fastest. Um, so anyway, that's that. And you have the top three takeaways for this show. Yeah, what a great, what a great topic. And it's great, it's a great topic in a, as I mentioned, I think in the beginning of the show, in sort of an awkward, uncomfortable way, because it's clearly talking about a devastating problem that could affect our loved ones. And yet at the same time, it isn't talked about much. So, you know, it, it would be easy to just ignore the topic because it is so unpleasant, like so many things with mental illness. Um, but I really enjoyed uh, learning from him. I think the favorite thing of mine that he said was repeatedly that idea that, you know, we're all made in the image of likeness of God, but he makes us all differently. 
you know, we're, we're all different. Uh, everyone, Tom, can't be as handsome as you and I. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just not going to happen in this world. Right. <laughs> um, and then I really liked his, his screening question, that if you think there's a problem in reference to your child or anyone else or, or a patient if you're in healthcare, ask, is there a problem? What's your relationship with food? Um, and then if there appears to be a problem, direct them you know, to, to a resource to get help. But if there's a problem you think there is, just ask. And then uh, lastly, and in no way least important, how many guests have we had on different topics <laughs> that, you know, that catalog for us the number of bad things that could be solved by simply sitting down together as a family and sharing a meal? I'm not sure how many times we have to hear that as a people um, to really take it to heart. But again, with, in this case, with eating disorders, you know, that's a perfect way for us to watch our children and, and try to get a sense of what their relationship with food is. Yep, that was uh, incredibly practical. And I think we're planning on another episode with him, which is going to have more patient stories, which I think is going to be fun. But there are many other things we can talk about with him. But we thank you for listening this time with Jonathan Clemens on eating disorders here on Dr. Doctor. You can find this in all our old episodes, really 300 of them now, on drdoctor.org. You can search the episode archive by guest or topic. And now we offer video versions of, of a lot of our shows. So just click on the YouTube link that's near the top of our homepage, doctordoctor.org. Um, and, and you can see this if you care to on video as well as audio. And if you've got a question about something we've covered or you have an idea for a topic you'd like us to cover, we would love to hear from you. Click on the button where it says, submit a question. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.